0: From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. A chaotic disaster, a train wreck, an unwatchable fever dream, those are some of the terms being used by pundits to describe the presidential debate last night between President Donald Trump. And Joe Biden in Cleveland. You
1: question a is: lot of the question Supreme is Justice, the radical question, left. Will you shut up, on, Listen. Who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your list, gentlemen?
2: Coming up
0: on forum, we'll break down the debate, if you can call it that, and we'll also get an update on the North Bay wildfires with a KQED reporter who is there. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. President Donald Trump failed to condemn violence by white supremacist groups in last night's debate against former Vice President Joe Biden.
1: What do you want to call him? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists Pride. And, Pride. Would and right supremacists. You like me to condemn white proud. Boys. And right proud, boys, and right proud boys,
0: stand back and stand by. It was perhaps the lowest point in an ugly, chaotic debate characterized by interruptions, fabrications, and shouting. Mainly from the incumbent, moderator Chris Wallace of Fox News struggled to control a debate that was meant to give voters insight into the candidates' records on issues like the Supreme Court, COVID-19, and the economy. We've got two top political analysts with us to try and make sense of the debate, if you call it that, and the president's continuing attempts to discredit the election and the democratic process. And we want to hear from you. What did you see up there last night or here? Give us a call now at 866 Seven three three six seven eight six. 733 6786 You can join us at that toll-free number. The number again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email. Any questions or comments you may have to forum at kqed.org. Joining us, our own Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent with KQED and co-host of KQED's Political Breakdown Show. And welcome, Marisa. Morning, Michael. Good morning to you. We'll also say good morning to Robert Costa, who also joins us for the hour, national political reporter with the Washington Post and moderator and managing editor of Washington Week on PBS. Welcome, Robert Costa.
3: Great to be with you on this big day.
0: Yeah, good to have you back with us. Let me begin with you, Robert Costa. Let me begin by saying that style certainly overshadowed substance in many people's minds last night and had a lot to do to uh, find civility. Uh, The president seemed to take it upon himself to behave like a professional wrestler with considerably less dignity, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are, because frankly mine, and I want to be very open about them, were that it was embarrassing, it was a low, it was a disgrace, it was in fact grotesque. And I'm wondering how this affects, uh, well, that five to 7% or whatever, the undecideds who were part of the uh, event, at at least as far as spectators are concerned. What are your thoughts?
3: Well, when you step back from the cacophony in Cleveland last night, you do see these two key moments. One, uh, the white supremacy question and the president's answer. Uh, his, He says, sure. And then he said, stand back and stand by. Stand back and stand by has really stung today in my conversations with the Republican officials who say that they did not want to see race come back into this 2020 campaign. And the other issue that stands out is at the end, his baseless claims about electoral fraud really challenging and testing the functioning of American democracy. Uh, but you ask about undecided voters, and they're key. Uh, but it, most polls show voters are, across the country are, are not really undecided at this point. Most people are dug in. And when I asked the president's advisors about why he took this approach last night, it came down to the simple strategy, they say, of rallying his core voters, that this, this was about electrifying them with insults and Uh, jabs at Vice President Biden more than doing any kind of outreach to the political center.
0: He also wanted, uh, Marisa, of course, to make uh, Joe Biden appear to be somewhat cognitively dysfunctional or even senile. And there was certainly a lot of uh, lead up to that in the rhetoric. Uh, It it perhaps helped uh, Vice President Biden in terms of low expectations. But the fact of the matter is that as a strategy, it seems to have failed utterly.
4: Yeah. And I mean, I think calling this a debate at this point is is debatable, right? Um, This was Trump largely trying to talk over Biden, really trying to bait him, I think, into attacking him. I mean, we know just from the past year of the Democratic primary that Biden does have a temper sometimes. And you could see him really steel himself. as Trump, you know, pushed and pushed. I mean, I'm so glad you started with the Proud Boys moment, Michael, because I think that that and, and, and to Robert's point, um, the end with the just absolutely gross misrepresentations and lies about the voter process and trying to tell people to essentially go to the polls and intimidate uh, folks. Um, you know, those were the two key moments, but I do think another one that I'm hearing, people who maybe aren't that political, I don't know if they're swing voters per se, but maybe aren't as paying enough attention. I've heard several people bring up on social media and and otherwise that moment where instead of taking the bait um, as 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 Joe Biden was talking about his his son Bo, who, of course, has passed away and Trump tried to, you know, bait him over his son uh, Hunter Biden. Joe Biden stood up and said, I'm proud of my son. He had an addiction problem and he overcame it. And I think that that, you know, it, Biden had a very hard time getting any points across last night. But that was a moment that I think is going to stick with some people because it felt very honest. And it's something that does cross party lines um, and that so many people in America have struggled with or seen family members struggle with.
0: I think that was uh, certainly a point for the Vice President, and uh, Robert Costa. Let, let's get back to a point that Marisa made here, and that is the concern about the democratic process. I mean, debates have always been rough in some ways, but civil. Last night's was not anything even resembling civil, civil. and uh, I'm wondering particularly about the threats to the democratic process and what your thoughts on that are, because the country certainly needs to prepare for that.
3: Well, your point about the democratic process is the central one, and the president is raising questions about whether there will be a peaceful transfer of power. Chris Wallace asked him, will he commit to encouraging his supporters to not cause civil unrest, and the president did not really directly answer that question in any way. Uh, and we're gonna have a showdown, perhaps, if it's not a landslide for President Trump or Vice President Biden, where there's going to be court fights. And the question is, does anything spill out onto the streets in a country that's already been torn apart by a pandemic, an economic crisis, and so many other issues? But your point about the debate is a little different because the peaceful transfer of power. It's part of our constitutional process. The debates are part of our political process, and they've only really become what we saw last night since 1960 with Kennedy and Nixon, and then the Commission on Presidential Debates as this nonpartisan organizing group, and with Jim Lair, the late PBS great, has uh, made them kind of a staple of presidential campaigns, but they're not necessary to the process. They're not part of the Constitution, uh, but they are another, shall we say, norm, a norm that has been shattered. Uh, and... Chris Wallace uh, got a lot of rave reviews for his performance in 2016 as a moderator, but when you have a a candidate like President Trump who will not really follow the rules in any way, uh, what is the role of the moderator? And this is a challenge for the press as it moves ahead. Uh, Steve Scully from C-SPAN will moderate the town hall, the next presidential debate. Then you'll have Kristen Welker from NBC News for the third and final.
0: Well, I'm actually getting comments already about Chris Wallace's role. He was on the (laughs) forum program just a few weeks ago. And uh, a listener writes, last night's debate was a disaster. I could not believe Trump's interruptions, Wallace's total inability, this is from Teresa, to control the debate and the ridiculous process they chose. This morning I wrote to the commission which produces these debates to voice my concern and insist that the format be changed. And another listener named Grant says, why not cancel the next two installments of that circus? A complete joke. This has certainly uh, been emerging, and I thank you for your point, Robert, because uh, the the difference between the political process uh, uh, on the one hand and the democratic process, I think, is uh, is an important bifurcation. Let me go back, Marisa, to you, because there were certainly uh, things that came up, very strong uh, kinds of dichotomies in terms of debate last night, despite the circus or... Uh, the ridiculousness of what people had to watch and I'm particularly thinking about again those children who had to watch that uh, here's a cut from last night where um, t- You could see the difference just in terms of the pandemic and the blame that was going around uh, on the one hand uh, President Trump saying you would have had even more millions of people dying uh, Because I shut down China and you wouldn't have shut down China, which was a fabrication But I'm wondering about uh, getting a response Marisa to what Trump said Just specifically, not only about masks, but let's hear this cut about shutting down.
1: He wants to shut down this country and I want to keep it open. And we did a great job by shutting it down. down. Wait a minute, Joe. Let Let me shut you down for a second, Joe. Just for one second.
0: Well, there it is. I mean, and there's a real gap there between the two of them.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I do think that this is where I I can't. I can't say that Trump won, but he did succeed in really, I think, stymieing Biden from making clear, compelling arguments around the difference that he would, say, uh, take when it comes to coronavirus and drawing those clear lines um in terms of how he might have handled this, if he had been president this year or he w- how he will handle it uh, next year. Um, But, you know, I think that it, we didn't hear it there. But at another point, Biden did make the point pretty forcefully that, look, you can't you can't bring back the economy without dealing with the coronavirus. And I, I do think that that's something that, you know, Democrats um, are going to try to talk about more. I mean, I think that, you know, they are, there's sort of this through line in some ways between the issues that they want to talk about the most, right? Whether it's the Supreme court nomination and the attacks on the affordable care act and the direct sort of tie between healthcare and obviously a global health pandemic. Um And so I think that, you know, it, it, it was uh, like you know chris wallace that is a tough job okay like let's let's not say it's not but at one point he Excuse actually me, Maurice, said, i think
0: last night it was an impossible job
4: it was an impossible job but i do think that there were times when he um probably could have done more uh, to interrupt the president i mean at one point he said i'm going to take the moderator role back <laughs> you know it's it it was very tough and i do see this morning that the president is tweeting um accusing Uh, Chris Wallace of being, you know, the second person debating him on stage. So, um, which I think is a very sort of typical attack by Trump that, you know, if he sees something that he doesn't like on the other side, he, or or, or that he sees that he's going to be attacked for, he kind of turns it around and we've seen that again and again.
0: Let me get a caller on here. Mary Jane joins us. Mary Jane, go ahead, please. You're on the air.
4: Um, I think that there would be more
5: control and more people, the guys would get their points across more if they had, um, A program or the moderator could just cut the mics off at two minutes and um, interrupt all that crosstalk because you lost the whole debate and all the crosstalk. You really couldn't hear what they were saying. Mm -hmm. And if if there was a possibility of just programming the mics at two minutes, cut off
4: and you can't just keep
5: yammering.
0: Mary Jane, thank you for that. Uh, Robert Casa, that's certainly been su- suggested by many that if they had cut off the mics or for that matter, had some kind of fact-finding immediately, uh, all those things seem to fall by the wayside, but uh, they're not gonna come up in the debates subsequent to this, are they?
3: Uh, we'll have to see what exactly comes up. I mean, w- w- this is a challenge for the Commission on Presidential Debates, which isn't a governmental institution, about how are you going to handle fact-checking? And the thing that stood out to me as a reporter is that at the end of the debate, to build on Marissa's point, when the president was making all these claims about electoral fraud, the FBI director under oath in the Trump administration recently testified that all this claim of uh, widespread voter fraud is wrong, it's inaccurate, and that it's anecdotal only. And, And that didn't come through for an audience of millions.
0: And let me just say, in defense of Chris Wallace for a moment, that he was wont to point out that uh, the president's uh, — well, the president's advisors and all of his counselors agreed to uh, the rules that were set up for this debate, and the president was violating many of those rules. Uh, we're going to cut away for about 60 seconds. Stay where you are, we'll con- turn, uh, continue, and we'll proceed forward with Robert Costa, Marisa Lagos, and you. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about last night's presidential debate with Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of our political breakdown show, and Robert Costa, who is a national political reporter with The Washington Post and moderator and managing editor of Washington Week on PBS, uh, Rich, one of our listeners, writes, much like the New York Times revelations about Trump's taxes, the putative debate merely reinforced what we already understood about Trump. He's a lying, cheating, bullying, narcissistic man-child who has neither the interest nor acumen to make policy. I had to turn off the debate after 30 minutes. It was worse than a waste of time. It was deeply painful. And uh, we did get into Trump's taxes uh, last night, so let's get into it a little bit here. Let's hear a cut.
1: Is it true that you paid $750 in federal income taxes each of those two years? I paid millions of dollars in taxes, millions of dollars of income tax.
0: Well, should we hold that up to uh, serious fact-checking, Marisol Lagos?
4: I mean, <laughs> I guess the, the easy answer, if, if Trump wants to prove that, would be to release his taxes uh, himself. Um, obviously, all of the very deep reporting that we've seen in The New York Times this week has uh, has, has shown otherwise. Um, you know, I think that this was another area where Biden maybe could have gone harder. But um, he, you know, I think it, it, it was interesting to sort of see Trump Trying to deflect that. I do think that, um, we saw in some of the, the reporting by the Times that what at least his spokespeople had done was try to conflate sort of other taxes with personal income taxes. And so that might be what Trump's talking about because, of course, you're still paying Social Security and all these other things, um, even if you can write off your personal income tax. But, um, clearly not, uh, you know, an area of discussion that, that the president wanted to get very deep into.
0: Well, there was an area of discussion and certainly division on a number of other things. I wanted also our listeners to hear what Joe Biden said about the economy and uh, get your thoughts on that, Robert Costa. Let's go to cut three. We
1: inherited the worst recession short of a depression in American history. I was asked to bring it back. We were able to have an economic recovery that created the jobs you're talking about. We handed him a booming economy. He blew it.
0: Pretty direct on that from Vice President Biden. uh, Robert Costa, on the other hand, there was a lot of argument about jobs and job creation and manufacturing. How did it uh, pan out for you?
3: Well, you saw from Vice President Biden, this focus not only on the economy, which has really struggled during the coronavirus pandemic, but a focus on healthcare. And that opening 20 minutes on the Supreme Court and the nomination of Judge Coney Barrett didn't really come down to the nominee herself. But about the threats to healthcare, and that, that was a two-pronged attack from Vice President Biden, saying that the Affordable Care Act is under threat in federal court due to President Trump, and that includes Biden argued pre-existing conditions for millions of Americans, and healthcare in general is under threat. He argued due to the president's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. It, it, beyond uh, the, the, the the Woodward tapes, it's the wholesale approach or lack thereof, Biden said, that it's caused the country immense economic pain and health pain. And that's, to Biden's advisors, the core of what this is all about. They're not just making an economic argument. They know the stock market is where it is. They're trying to say to swing voters that you're hurting and that President Trump, despite all of his claims, isn't coming through on your health care and thus on on your economic situation.
0: And then we bring another caller on. Julian joins us. Julian, welcome. You're on the air. Uh, yeah yeah go ahead yeah, right.
6: all right um i i just wanted to point out because i you know i feel like everybody on today is saying good things about you know what biden tried to say and uh i feel i kind of feel like uh one thing needs to be said and and uh and that is that this this is not something that the republicans team you know sort of uh Put together as a strategy, there is no strategy. It's basically just Trump, you know, getting up there, and he's gonna these next couple of debates are gonna be the same thing where he just gets up and and basically sort of spends what Biden has to say each time, you know. So it's just sort of this this kind of uh, you know kind of bullying thing where I feel like Biden's the parent and uh, and Trump is the spoiled little kid that bugged in all the time, and and this is nothing new. This is something we did during the apprentice and, uh, and what he's done during the whole presidency. And then I've just sort of seen, um, you know, things happen where this whole presidency, where he, uh, he just, you know, is, is kind of, um, you know, just sputtering a whole bunch of stuff. And, and that's, that's his game. That's his tactic. And, uh, and so these debate things are just, you know, kind of, uh, I, I felt like, everybody has felt, what I've heard this morning, just very kind of excruciating because um, he he's not going to tell us anything. He didn't tell us anything about the $750 thing that came out recently with his taxes. And uh, Julian, let me jump
0: in here. You're getting off on, on something else here, and sure. I want to hear from some other listeners, give other people an opportunity to weigh in here. In fact, let me go next to uh, Morris from Sunnyvale. Morris, please, you're on the air.
5: Yeah, I think... Biden really needs to be cool under fire and not to play into Trump's game. It only belittles him. When Trump interrupts him, he should stop speaking and wait till Trump finishes with his tirade and then say, Are you finished with your interruption?
0: Well, you're and not the only continues. one that feels that way, Morris. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me thank you for that call. I'm looking at an uh, email from Eric who says someone should tell Joe Biden not to lower himself to the level of donald trump by disparaging him by telling him to shut up or calling him stupid uh actually it was trump who called biden stupid it's a very tall order i know but uh there was name calling uh, biden called trump a racist and uh you know it did unfortunately sink to that level and as i said it was it was uh, it was painful it was uh, i was recoiling i have to give you a, a personal response uh, and and as i said kept thinking about children young people getting introduced to uh presidential figures. I also was remembering, uh, just for a moment of reflection here, Marisa Lagos, when a candidate, Donald Trump, said, you will never find anyone more presidential than I am. But last night, for someone who has said he's a counterpuncher, basically, he was kind of flailing around for haymakers. It was like he was uh, in the ring and he was trying to punch and, and swinging kind of wildly at times
4: yeah and I think there's been some analysis uh, reporting of those close to Trump, you know that that essentially he's looking at the polls and feel like he could be losing this race and that he's lashing out, um which I think is in line with sort of his approach uh, throughout his 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 career really, um, you know, I I can't I can't disagree. I don't know that this was a strategy. I think that this was Trump sort of unleashed. I think that he um, clearly was mad often at, at times, and I think he um, was sort of happy to be dominating as much as he possibly could. Um, you know, I think to the to the point about sort of just not responding. I I, I, I have the same thought at points. I thought maybe Chris Wallace, that might have been something he could have tried to just say, we're not going to move on until you let him finish, you know, a two minute answer. Um, you know, and I think it, it, watching. Fox News. Afterwards, I was watching Sean Hannity and 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 the um, president's allies. You know, they said, "No offense to Chris Wallace, we would have preferred no moderator." I mean, I think that there was a desire among some in his base to to see what he did. Um, but I think you know, going back to the key question here, which is that small group of undersided voters that are out there. I don't know, you know. Who, if if I didn't have to watch the whole ninety minutes for my job, Michael, I probably would have turned it off, right? I mean, I have little kids. In A lot my of people house. did. Yeah, and so I don't know. You know, we know what we know about swing voters generally is that they're they are more disengaged just writ large. They're not following every twist and turn of the news cycle the way we are, and so it does feel like this type of attack. Um, and, and just sort of posturing by the president fr- out of the gate really could have turned a lot of people off. And I don't know that that helps either candidate, frankly.
0: Well, let me go ahead and read some emails that are coming in. And a lot are coming in. Amy writes, Biden did a great job. Biden looked directly at the camera, spoke clearly to mm-hmm. the American people with true leadership. He was strong and powerful in his convictions when he wasn't being constantly interrupted. He was competent, presidential and better than expected. On the other hand, here's Enrique, who says Biden's drugs and blood transfusion kept him awake. But on the issues, it was the same old tired Democrat lines and program. Trump is weak on health care, strong on most other issues. Trump killed Biden on law and order Mm
4: -hmm. and not
0: condemning his Antifa and Black Lives Matter urban terrorism. Let's take that up with you, Robert Costa. Clearly, Trump kept talking about Antifa and he kept talking about uh, the left pulling away from Biden and trying uh, essentially to paint that picture of Biden as being manipulatable by I suppose, the squad and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and the, what would be the farther left of the Democratic Party, but also trying to say that he's not doing enough to keep the suburbs straight, uh, safe and the cities safe and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, did he certainly land some chaos uh, on that or some serious punches on that, do you think, b- beside his
3: base? Since Vice President Biden has the Democratic Party behind him, Uh, he's able to get out there on a limb and and almost take some shots at the left wing of the democratic party we heard from vice president biden on the green new deal on law and order issues that he is the democratic party a moderate democrat and while the left wing of the democratic party doesn't love this kind of language and this approach those concerns are papered over by this shared uh, belief that president trump is a threat to american democracy and that shared belief in the threat of president trump in a second term is uniting Democrats, and it's also allowing Biden to get out there and try to counter President Trump on the suburban issue, because the president looks at the political map, and I, I hear this from his top advisors, and sees the suburbs of Milwaukee, the suburbs of Philadelphia, uh, the the, the uh, I-4 corridor in Florida, and he believes if he just hits law and order, which it, which it has racial elements to it, no doubt about it, coming amid a racial reckoning in this country, that he can help get white voters in the suburbs to come out strong for him in enormous numbers. Uh, But Biden keeps arguing that the president is the one who's inciting unrest and that he is a moderate Democrat, someone who has Scranton, Pennsylvania roots, and he's hoping that breaks through.
0: I was reading some political analysis, Marisa, about how President Trump, uh, at least this author, felt uh, rather than concentrating on the white working class, uh, excuse me, (laughs) That that President Trump is uh, clearly concentrating on suburban women, but Joe Biden, rather than concentrating on the white working class, should be concentrating on black and Latino voters Mm -hmm. because they need to turn out in greater numbers to really put him over the top in the Electoral College. And uh, there was a Telemundo poll right after the debate last night, and about 60 percent of uh, those who were queried said they thought that... uh, President Trump had won the debate. There, there's strong support for President Trump in various parts of the Latino community and, uh, or communities. Uh, and many of those Latinos, of course, voted for Bernie Sanders. Uh, I'm just wondering at this point, just a political question, is, uh, Pre- Vice President Biden perhaps putting too much emphasis on his fellow white working class, uh, uh cohorts, so to speak, rather than where it should be with black and brown voters?
4: Well, I mean, it's hard to tell since he barely got a word in edgewise last night. Um, you know, I, I, think that that is the real challenge for the Biden campaign writ large is this question of kind of trying to do both, right? Trying to reassure maybe, um, you know, those Republicans who have, who did vote, uh, for Trump last time, but they think that, you know, have been turned off by him or swing voters like that. I mean, I thought the way that Biden tried to frame the suburban question was interesting because he talked about the fact that, you know, it, that suburbs are, you know, largely integrated and that this isn't just about sort of white people. And he really tried to draw that contrast between him as someone from Scranton and who who understands the suburbs and mm-hmm. and uh, Donald Trump. I think he said, you know, you're from Park Avenue. I'm from Scranton. Um, I think what I he says th- you
0: wouldn't know a suburb if you, uh, <laughs> if you came right into in one. one in the wrong yeah, way. Yeah.
4: I-, I think there's an interesting side note here, which is like, perhaps the Proud Boys moment, which I do want to go back to, because I do think it is so important to talk about the fact that we have a president who literally told a white supremacist, I mean, you know, group to stand by, and they are using that today um, in social media, um, talking about this as, you know, basically proof that the president supports them, which I think it's hard to argue with. Um, I think that that moment, if you look at who's out there talking about it, you um, that Trump could have sort of done a favor for Biden with Black voters on that because that is something that if you i think um are a person of color in this country are looking at um and a lot of other people too and are pretty horrified by and so um you know i, I don't know i think that biden clearly was ready for the attacks on him as being too far left he really tried to distance himself um from medicare for all uh, from the green new deal but he also obviously um by doing that is sort of in a way playing into trump's what trump wants to talk about with the Democrats and what he calls the radical left
0: he also tried to distance himself from violence he and a number of times he said i do not countenance violence or words to that effect uh, but I do in fact favor protest if it's legitimate and if it's nonviolent yeah looking and at can some I, columns about can I just jump
4: in yeah. I, I just realized something you know I, I believe that telemundo poll you talked about was actually yeah. a Twitter poll so I don't think it was actually waited for anything other than the folks who decided to Way in um, so I'm not sure the methodology there is 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 that solid, but I think you are right that there has been some softening um, for Trump by certain sectors of the Latino community, especially in places like Florida.
0: And I'm looking at some comments. Uh about the proud boys edie writes it's as if trump feels proud boys is his private militia of white supremacists to be used as he feels threatened about losing the election he is a danger to homeland security His hints at white uh, at white supremacists patrolling voting venues is reminiscent of a move by an authoritarian leader and matt writes make no mistake trump asked the proud boys to prepare for civil war they will be at the polls with guns someone will get shot violence will break out I may be uh, sort of a little Cassandra-ish, but uh, I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are, Robert Costa. And before actually I hear them, uh, let's hear a cut. This is cut seven.
7: Are you
1: willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not... stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. Well, there it is, Robert
0: Costa. I mean, what we have certainly been focusing on along with the the threat at the polls and Proud Boys maybe or other white supremacists going to the polls and the specter of some very uh, kind of dark things happening in this election. Uh, I mean, your thoughts.
3: A few months ago, I did a story for the Washington Post about the Republican National Committee and the RNC publicly has said it's organizing 50,000 poll watchers. That's their mm-hmm. phrase, poll watchers, to monitor the polls. And you have the president encouraging with urgency at the debate last night, his supporters to go out and monitor the polls. And then he says about the Proud Boys, a white nationalist, a white supremacist group, stand back and stand by. The stand back is what it is. The standby is the loaded word of a 90-minute debate. What does he mean by standby? And when asked to condemn white supremacy, he did not say, I condemn white supremacy. He said, sure. And the White House today maintains that he did condemn it. That's what we're hearing from the president's spokespeople. Uh, but the president's words speak for, speak for themselves. When asked to condemn, sure. Uh, and when asked about Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. Uh, and this comes as there's restlessness in the streets an attorney general who's working closely with the president, with the Department of Homeland Security to monitor unrest in the cities as governors feel like the the federal government is overstepping its bounds at times and how they use federal agents in the cities. It's a brew of uh, trouble ahead for American democracy.
0: And any thoughts about what can be done to prevent that trouble ahead or to diminish it or to reduce it? At this the, point.
3: Republicans, the Republicans' response to all of this and President Trump in the hours after the election will be critical.
0: We'll continue this discussion. Robert Costa with us, national political reporter with the Washington Post and moderator and managing editor of Washington Week on PBS. And Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED and co-host of KQED's political breakdown show. More when we return. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about last night's presidential debate here on the Forum program with Robert Costa of The Washington Post and Washington Week in Review, and uh, also with Marisa Lagos of KQD's Political Breakdown show. And you, our listeners, let's go next to another caller. Kenneth joins us. Kenneth, welcome.
5: Hi, this is Kenneth in Venice, California. Last night, I was lucky enough to watch the debates with my seven and nine-year-old and my mom, who's seventy-seven. So we had three generations. And sadly, you know, the the hard part for me was seeing this and I'm seeing the same politics in our town of Benicia, where we have oil money just trying to run our election and trying to smear our best candidate, which is Steve Young and trying to make him look old. And the hit pieces just rolled out during this election. And they've done this year after year, oil money trying to run our town and the people who are there for our town to take care of it for the people. Just get smeared, and it's not okay. It's not acceptable. And I think what we were missing last night was Gallagher with the sledgehammered gavel to control that debate and make it a funny one. If we're going to have to listen to that, it's just unacceptable that people can't get a word in without being interrupted. Boy, the
0: Gallagher—that's that's that's a first recommendation of having Gallagher with his gavel. Thank you for that, of The little (laughs) levity helps here. Uh, I'm going to read an email from Stephen who says, I couldn't believe Trump had the gall to criticize Obama for leaving so many judicial vacancies for him to fill, when, of course, it was obstruction by the Republican Senate that prevented Obama from filling those seats. And I was disappointed Biden did not respond to that ludicrous attack. Speaking about disappointments and lack of response uh, from Biden, Marisa, let me go back to you on this uh, there was some concern that Biden really didn't come out uh, strong enough on when Trump kept taunting him about where's your support from the law enforcement community. And Trump actually uh, said that the sheriff of Portland was behind him, which is absolutely a fabrication. The sheriff of Portland has said publicly, I am not a supporter of Donald Trump. and never <laughs> Well, will and be. he's
4: not the sheriff of Portland. He's the sheriff of the county. He's that's the, the sheriff the of the county. Work. Exactly. Uh,
0: <laughs> but it, it, there were those who said, you know, why didn't Biden respond? Or couldn't he have uh, come out with something? Because it made it sound like all the police. As opposed to U.S. attorneys and prosecutors and others who are behind Biden in law enforcement of all stripes, uh, that Biden kind of kept silent on that and shouldn't have.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that this was a strategic uh, decision by Biden to some extent to not kind of uh, respond tit for tat on some of the ways that, that the president attempted to bait him. Um, I think that that you know could be seen as a lost opportunity because. To your point, I mean, I think it's true. A lot of most of the police unions are backing Trump, right? Those are the big organizations. Um, I think, you know, I, I'm not sure people really care about the distinction between officials and organizations in, in a situation like that. Um, but it, it it certainly is an area that Trump has really tried to take Biden and the Democrats to task on. I mean, polling doesn't show that it's been all that effective. And I do think, you know, Biden did get in um, that comment about the Lafayette Square protest and when Trump cleared it uh, with force uh, in order to go basically pose for a photo op. Um, but but yeah, I think it's a sticky area. I think it's a challenging one. I mean, the truth is, you know, even when Biden was using uh, Trump's own administration's words, talking about the FBI director, uh, you know, talking before Congress about the fact that far right organizations are far more of a threat um, than uh, a sort of movement like Antifa, um, Trump cut him off. And I don't think he made that point very clearly. So I think if people who aren't super familiar with this were watching the debate, they did not come away with a strong sense of sort of where Biden stands on some of that.
0: There's a comment from Greg who emails us and says, What do your guests think about the race question that was asked? When Chris Wallace asked about race relations, the president started talking about law and order. Doesn't that pretty plainly express how he truly feels about people of color? Robert Costa.
3: We've seen this president going back to his campaign, his Muslim ban, Charlottesville in 2017, to everything that's happening right now with the Black Lives Matter movement, make these kind of comments on race. And white supremacy—it's nothing new. It's alarming to hear white supremacy talked about in these kind of ways. At the same time, this is a president who, going back to the 1970s, was dealing with uh, allegations of racism in his family's company and housing projects. So this is part of the Trump story. It's now part of the American story. And for any voter to say they're they're not clear about where the president stands uh well we can't know what's in anyone's heart but we can certainly know what they have said and what the president said last night stand back and stand by goes back to both sides charlottesville i could go on and on as i've reported on all these stories but this is who he is uh, and he's not hiding it
0: and certainly uh when chris wallace uh, started talking about that with vice president biden he said this was a, charlottesville was the reason you entered this race to try to uh sort of save the soul or preserve the soul of the United States. Um, I wanted to hear a cut that came up uh, later on. And uh, this is about climate change, which finally was brought up in the debate. And there was uh, certainly a response by the vice president, uh, the former vice president, Joe Biden, that there was no plan on the pandemic and no plan on climate change. Let's hear how this was brought up by Chris Wallace.
1: I'd like to talk about climate change. So would I. Okay.
0: And indeed, Vice President Biden did want to talk about climate change, Robert Costa, and got in that uh, sense that uh, science is not being honored here, not even being observed, and that uh, the, the nation, the world, if you will, globally is in serious trouble. And he t- talked about getting back to the climate change agreement.
3: It was good to hear about climate change. It's such a critical issue for, for the country and the world. Uh, but California knows this better than anyone. And to hear the president talk about clearing the forests, uh, certainly how forests are handled is a, is a major issue in California and other states that are dealing with fires and climate change. But the president in a almost half-hearted way acknowledged man's role in climate change, but did not delve into the science and did not offer any kind of systemic approach to dealing with either fires or climate change more broadly. And uh, that's, that's, that's where this debate stands. Uh, but the Biden campaign is careful, as was the candidate last night, to not get pulled into an endorsement of the Green New Deal. He keeps emphasizing that he has his own deal because he knows that some suburban voters were more business oriented conservative types may not love the idea of a Green New Deal, but do take climate change seriously. And that's the balance beam he's on politically.
0: And I'm looking at a comment from Faye who says, what about Trump talking about raking the forest? Trump said that kooky thing again, specifically mm. picking on California. Biden missed an opportunity to say those are federal lands. And, uh, Something else, that uh, I'm going to go to you, Amarisa, and this is what Jessica emails us. Uh, she talks about Trump's dismissal of the late Beau Biden and says it was awful.
4: Yeah, I mean I think that that was um I mean a couple things there. One is, you know, to my earlier point, I do think that that was a very human moment um for Biden to really talk about substance abuse and and again just an issue that has touched so many people, I mean, before this pandemic, um really that was a, a huge issue that we were all discussing in terms of healthcare and how we sort of handle this. Um and then I think there's a broader strategy here, which is that Biden clearly did not want to sort of get dragged down into a debate. I mean, he said, you want to talk about ethics, we could talk about your kids all day. Um, and I think that the Biden campaign has clearly chosen to deflect those types of attacks and, and not engage on them, I, I would assume, because they think that it is stronger for them to hammer on the areas where he has been really doing well in this race around COVID, around uh, the issue of chaos and, and the fact that a lot of people just don't like that about Trump, even if they agree with his policies more than Biden's. Marisa, forgive uh, me, I'm going to break yeah. in here
0: because I wanted to actually, our listeners, to hear a cut about this uh, with Bo Biden. Cut five. Danny, we have cut five.
1: Just make sure you understand you have it in your control to determine what this country is going to look like the next four years. Is it going to change or you get four more years of these lies?
0: That was pretty strong stuff. Uh, I'm wondering, actually, if I, Robert Costa, get a response from you, from a listener. I know you only have about a, uh, both of you only have a few minutes left with us because we're going to give an update on the fires. But Gary wants to know, in a quiet moment after the debate, how do you think Trump views this performance? Love to hear Robert Costa's speculation.
3: I've covered President Trump as a businessman, as a political figure for nearly a decade, and. He's the kind of person who has one mode, attack, 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 fight, fight, fight. Uh, even if the truth is abused, he will plow ahead. And this is a candidate who, who's recalibrating his 2016 playbook. And it's going to be a firestorm between now and Election Day as he not only shatters norms, but de- takes an axe to them politically uh, and makes claims that are baseless and tries to electrify his republican party and this is a republican party that's in lockstep with him and the thing to watch as i always did in 2016 is the quiet voters who say nothing about where they stand but may not like the leftward drift of the democratic party and might still vote for president trump so the polls show biden ahead But the president knows that he has some quiet support in some of these battlegrounds, and he's going to do everything possible, whether it's through fear or political will, to bring them once again to his side.
0: And one might add the fact that the president uh, is trying to survive also to keep the immunity as the president, because as his tax returns uh, seem to reveal, there is a good deal for him to be concerned about if he's no longer in office. Thank you, Robert Costa. Good to have you with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's Robert Costa, national political reporter of the Washington Post and moderator and managing editor of Washington Week on PBS, and thanks, Marisa Lagos, always good to have you with us as well.
4: Thanks for having me, Michael.
0: Marisa Lagos is politics correspondent with KQED and co-host KQED's Political Breakdown Show. And, uh, Stephen, can we get a word from you before we uh, sign off here and find out what's happening with the fires? Stephen from Napa? Stephen from Napa, are you there? okay i thought he had a a final word to add from a listener um well the glass fire in the north bay grew to almost 50,000 acres overnight and is only two percent contained as new evacuation orders were issued in areas near calistoga yesterday joining us for the latest on the wildfire is kqed's shiraz shadiq uh who is in calistoga right now and shiraz welcome
2: hi michael thanks so much for having me
0: glad to have you and uh Tell us what you're seeing. What you're experiencing. Well,
2: I'm at the famed Castello di Amorosa winery here in Calistoga, um, and it's a Tuscan style uh, winery. Amazing architecture here, um, and what I'm looking at is a pretty significant fire damage um, to a structure here. That's at, uh, it's called the farmhouse. It's adjacent to the uh, to the castle, and um, I was just speaking. I did a quick interview with. Madeline Reed, she's the Director of Hospitality, and she's been here since November. And She told me that they've lost 100,000 bottles of wine. Um, the damage to me looks fairly significant, probably in the millions of dollars. Um, and this area, the structure that has been damaged, uh, not only did the shipping and receiving, but also was the site of their offices, and there were some fermentation tanks as well, um, and their bottling line. Um, so... For those who are not aware, uh, Castello di Amorosa is famous for Italian varietals, bar- such as Sangiovese, Pinot Grigio. Um, but luckily for them, most of the vineyards are okay.
0: Well, Shiraz, you got an opportunity to speak to them. I'm wondering, how are they integrating all of this? You, you know, You think about all of the hopes and aspirations and lifeblood that goes into these kinds of things, and just to see them go up in flames and smoke, uh, it's extraordinary, the effect it must have.
2: You're absolutely right. Um, Madeline was telling me that just, you know, coming here and looking at this, she said it's just heartbreaking, you know. Um, this this is basically a, a structure that she's known and loved, And uh, but she did also emphasize and make a point to just express so much gratitude and appreciation for the heroic work of the firefighters um, for a fire season that has just been unremitting. Um, and in fact, when I was coming over here, I stopped at the intersection, the main intersection of Calistoga, at Lincoln and Foothill Boulevard, and there was a staging area. Um, so I got out, took some photos, and tried to talk to some of the firefighters. Uh, there were probably at least two, maybe three dozen firefighters there, and the thing that also struck me is where they're coming from. I mean, there were firefighters from Ventura County, There's um, there are firef- there firefighters from El Dorado County, there was um, also, of course, Sonoma and Kern County, and um, they were just you know we're very resilient um they were very busy so they couldn't really talk to me but they agreed that this has been a very very intense fire season and uh isn't likely to let up anytime soon
0: I don't think we can say enough about the valiance and the endurance of these firefighters. Uh, my hat and heart go out to them, but heart goes out, especially to the people who have uh, suffered as a result of these terrible, catastrophic fires. Uh, Shiraz Sadiq with us, and Antonio Negrete is also with us. He's CAL FIRE Public Information Officer. and uh, Antonio Negrete, good to have you. Welcome to the program.
7: Uh, thank you for having me, sir. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here for you.
0: Well, a pleasure, but under the circumstances, uh, it's hard to find pleasure. Give us a sense, if you could, of the update uh, in terms of what you're seeing and what you're experiencing.
7: Well, as you can imagine, uh, this is a very trying time for the areas in the the counties of Napa and Sonoma. Uh, You know, we're going in another year of a fire season, another uh, fire in, in this area. So... You know, we we empathize with the, the stress of, of the community, and we just want that community to know that uh, we are there for them. Uh, but, yeah, the, so the latest numbers I have for you today is that the uh, fire is uh, grown to 48,440 acres Uh Due to the hard work overnight of the firefighters out there, we were able to raise the containment level from 0%, which was yesterday, to uh, 2%. And I know, you know, in the, it might seem uh, minor in the grand scheme of things, but, you know, due to the conditions out there and, and um, the arduous work that the firefighters are facing, you know, it, it's actually a significant bump. And uh, we, are, we are happy to report that that 2%. Um, as of this morning, we also have more than uh, 2,000 uh, personnel, total personnel, assigned to this fire, and that encompasses, you know, the um, the fire engines, water tenders, helicopters, uh, hand crews, dozer operators. You know, they're, we're hitting this this fire as hard as we can because we want to get the community back to some normalcy as quickly as possible.
0: Well, I want to ask you, in fact, about evacuations. But first, could you say something about the prognosis with the weather? Is it helping or hindering the firefighting efforts?
7: Uh, it's it's actually uh, hindering. So uh, here in our base camp, it, you know, it kind of fools everybody. You know, it's a little um, it's a little foggy. It's a little chilly. Uh, but the information we're getting from the incident meteorologists is out in uh, in the areas where the fire is currently burning. Uh, it's the exact opposite. It's hot, dry weather. It's anticipated over the next uh, several days. You know the Santa Ana wind, Santa Ana wind conditions that uh, the red flag conditions that were here a couple days ago really didn't do any favors for the the firefighters, and in fact, it uh, increased the danger for the crews that are out there. But um, yeah, yeah, it's just something that we deal with, and uh, we go out there and we just uh, work as as hard as we can.
0: We're talking again with Antonio Negrete, who is Cal Fire Public Information Officer. Antonio, can you tell us about the evacuations? What's the status?
7: Well, the, there's uh, multiple evacuations through uh, throughout the area in, um, in in Napa County, Calistoga, Sonoma counties. Uh, I so um, I, I had like I said, I have several. Is there any? specific ones you're looking at, because, you know, we're talking one, two, yeah, I have like seven shelters throughout the uh, the area. You know, if, um, if the public would like probably the best thing to, uh, to do would be to go on uh, Napa counties, uh, follow Nixle, the local com, And uh, you can plug in, in the search engine, the area that you're interested in and they will have all the, uh all the evacuation shelters and uh and if worst comes to worst they can also just call 211 and 211 will direct them to the nearest shelter over to uh, wherever they're they're searching
0: well, I thank you for that, and uh, we can only hope that things will continue to be more contained and that people will not suffer any more than they are right now. We just got an update on the Glass Fire from KQED's Shiraz Sadiq and Cal Fire Public Information Officer Antonio Negrete. And we are here with you Monday through Friday, and we always invite you to let us know about what you think uh, on, of the forum program, what you hear on it, what you'd like to hear on it by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. We'll be back for another program tomorrow. We're going to be talking to the new CSU uh, chancellor and uh, another hour ahead, of course, a forum with me to Kim. Thank you for being a part of this opening hour. And for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, I thank you one and all. And uh, please stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny.